Our New Testament scripture reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear God's word. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray together. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament, and we will be in chapter 2 this evening. If you don't feel comfortable spending the next 10 minutes looking for Nahum, just look in the worship order and you will find the sermon text printed there for you. Nahum chapter 2. We began our series on Nahum last week. It's a follow-up to the series we did on the book of Jonah. And we wanted to see the end of the story. We saw what God did to Nineveh in the time of Jonah and how God showed mercy and grace on the city of Nineveh and spared them of His judgment. You fast forward several decades and you see that Nineveh has gone back to its old ways still afflicting the people of God, still afflicting the nations around it. And God has reached the end of his patience with Nineveh. And so Nahum the prophet is is given a vision about the end or the destruction of the city of Nineveh, which will come by the hand of the armies of Babylon, whom God is raising up as his war club to bring judgment on Nineveh. A brief story, a brief history of Nineveh lets you know that Nineveh has been around a long time. After the flood, a man by the name of Nimrod shows up on the scene. And the scriptures say that Nimrod was the first mighty man in the world. He built the city of Nineveh among other cities. And he was a mighty man, accomplished many great feats. And what we see is that the city of Nineveh has been around for hundreds upon hundreds of years and has developed into this mega city that we see in the book of Nahum. 
I want to remind you that last week as we entered into Nahum, we tried to point out that this book contains two major themes. One is the compassion of God on His people. The other is the severity of God on the enemies of His people. In Nahum chapter 2, we will find more of the same. Mercy for God's people and yet severity for God's enemies. We're saying that this vision that Nahum received is also a vision that tells us something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while that might be new for some people, it might be strange for some people to try to find the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and especially in an obscure prophet in the Old Testament. We believe that every word of God points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even Nahum too has something to say to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. And I will read from Nahum 1.15 all the way to the end of Nahum chapter 2 and verse 13. And the word of God reads, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officials. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off all your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And this is the word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of His Word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Here's what's happening in Nahum 2. 
The backstory is that the people of God had divided. Israel had divided just after the reign of King Solomon. You had a northern kingdom called Samaria, a southern kingdom called Judah. In the time of Jonah the prophet, Samaria was afflicted by the Ninevites. But now Samaria is gone. She is no more. And what we're left with is the southern kingdom of Judah. She remains. But this is not a matter of luck or happenstance, but of providence. In Genesis chapter 49, God promised that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, that the ruler's staff would not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This was the promise that God made to Judah and to his tribe. And yet Judah finds himself enslaved to Nineveh, finds himself in a dark moment, finds himself in a place that he does not expect to be, a place that seems to contradict the promises of God. And yet God has promised to preserve the tribe of Judah and to establish a ruler from Judah. So what is the good news that they are to hear? The good news for them is that God is keeping his promise. That by preserving and protecting Judah, by bringing Judah out of Nineveh and out of Samaria, bringing them back to their land, God will keep His promise to send a Savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. How will He accomplish this? Well, Nahum 2.1 mentions something called the scatterer. Some of your translations might say the disperser or the desolator. It's a terrible word that has to do with someone who is coming up against Nineveh. And Nineveh is told by God to man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle. He is challenging them to prepare for this onslaught of the Babylonians who are coming as the scatterer that God has sent their way. The reason God is sending this scatterer, this desolator against Nineveh is because Nineveh has emptied and ravaged God's people, Judah. And now God will work by means of Babylon to avenge his people. He says in this vision that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Things look very bleak and very dark in this moment. And yet God intends to do something with this remnant of his people. God's people have been shamed and humiliated, but they will once again be honored and exalted. And all of this is keeping with God's promise and God's power to his people. Jacob is mentioned in the midst of this vision. Why Jacob? Well, if you go back to Genesis 48, Jacob says something very interesting to one of his sons when he says, God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Well, again, when Judah finds himself In Nineveh, in Assyria, outside the land of promise, he might be tempted to think God's promises have failed. But when he hears once again that God intends to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, the people who have wrestled with God and yet who reflect the glory of God, their hope can be restored once again that God will keep his word to them. 
So just at the moment when everything seems like all is lost, God reminds His people that He is present with them, that His promises will not fail, that they will be restored and replanted in their homeland. Just as God once delivered Israel from Egypt, so now He will deliver Judah from Assyria. Only this time, He is not going to weaponize creation against His enemies. He is going to raise up a nation, the Babylonians. He will weaponize them and send them with swords and spears, not plagues, in order to deliver His people. In verses 3 and 4 of Nahum 2, you find this very graphic description of the Babylonians. Notice all of the images of red. The shields are red. The clothes are red. Things are flashing. There appears to be lightning. In other words, when you look at this army that is coming against Nineveh, it is an army that is coming with full force. An army that is bringing the wrath of God to bear upon Nineveh. Red is the color of fire. It is the color of anger and wrath and blood, judgment and hell. And what Nahum is trying to convey in this vision, what he's trying to get across with this poetic imagery, is that Yahweh is sending Babylon to unleash hell on Nineveh. It's a terrifying image if you're on the receiving end of this judgment. The desolation and the destruction of Nineveh will be fast and furious. What took many centuries to build up, a city that took many centuries to build up, will be taken down in just a few weeks. Historians tell us that the fall of Nineveh only took three months. A city that was impossible to bring down, walls that were impossible to breach, was brought down in three months by the Babylonians. Nahum puts us into the mind and to the shoes of the king of Nineveh. He gives us the perspective of the king as the king looks around and he sees this onslaught of red, this blood red wave of judgment about the break on the walls of his city. He turns in verse 5 through 8 and 5 through 10, I should say. He turns and he sees all of the chaos and the pandemonium in the streets and on the walls and in the towers. A man-made flood is breaking through the gates. Rivers are flowing through the city into the palace, washing away the filth of Nineveh, bringing down the city of man. He sees that men are cut down and women are carried off and cries go out and soldiers flee. And notice the graphic imagery here describing what's happening inside the people. Hearts melt away, knees tremble and shake, bellies contract and ache. Faces darken and fade. And then you have this decreation image used in verse 10. Desolation and decreation. Desolation and ruin. Nineveh will become empty and waste. Formless and void. Darkness will cover the surface of this city. And then rhetorical questions are asked by the prophet. To the king. To the lion. To the king who was the pride of the land. Where is the lion's den? What is this lion now providing for the royal household, for the queens, for their children? What is he able to do? He was the king of the jungle, so to speak. There was no one mightier than the king of Nineveh, and yet 
God is raising up someone to bring him down. He had attacked and killed in order to secure the future of his own seed line and kingdom, and yet he will see the end of it in his own days. Why? Because the Lord is against him. The Lord is against him and the sword will cut him down. This will be the end of Nimrod's project. This will be the end of Nineveh's pride. Terrifying words are found in verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. Three times, three other times in the book of Nineveh, this phrase cut off is used. It's used in this place. I will cut off. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And three other times it's used. I will cut off. This is a judgment image. That God intends to put an end to Nineveh's idolatry. To put an end to Nineveh's violence. To put an end to Nineveh's reign. To put an end to Nineveh. The voices of your messengers shall no longer be heard. No longer will you send out propaganda to the nations around you, declaring how great and mighty and glorious you are. You will be cut off. Your messengers will no longer run and spread your message and your word through the world. All of this is coming to an end. I said that the phrase, I'm against you, is a terrifying phrase. I would encourage you to think for just a moment... If you could put yourself in the shoes of the people of Nineveh, don't stay there long, but if you could put yourself in their shoes and you heard these words that God is against you, imagine what it would sound like. You who know and believe the gospel and the promises attached to the gospel, what if the good news was reversed and you heard bad news? If God is against you, who can be for you? If God sets fire to your world, who will put out that fire? This is the message that Nineveh is hearing. It is not good news for the enemies of God. It is bad news for them. But thank God that in Christ you will never hear those words that God is against you. You will never hear God say to you who are in Christ, I am against you. What you hear is that I am for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He has given you all things in Christ. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is nothing in the past, the present or the future. There is nothing visible or invisible that could ever cut you off from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we give praise and thanks to God in Christ that we do not hear The words of Nahum the prophet fall on us like bad news, as if we were the enemies of God. They fall on us as good news, for we are in Christ. What is the moral of this story so far? The moral of this story is that there is always a bigger fish. Remember back to Jonah, we said that the symbol of the Ninevites was a fish. That's one reason Jonah spent three days and three nights in a fish. It was to show him that he was going to be in Nineveh. God is sovereign and God will put Jonah where he wants him to be. He will spend time in the fish. He will preach God's word inside the fish, the city of Nineveh. There's always a bigger fish. We learn that from Star Wars and Qui-Gon Jinn and the Phantom Menace, don't we? And what's happening here? 
Babylon comes, and Babylon is a bigger fish, a nastier fish than Nineveh. There's always a bigger fish. In the first reading, in our first trek through Nahum, we see this vision of the destruction of Nineveh by the Babylonians. And here's what I want you to grasp about this. I know the prophets are strange, and I know they can be difficult for us if we don't live with them very long. But here's what I want you to see is the prophets give us a theology of history. In other words, they give us a way of understanding what God is doing in space-time history and how God brings nations up and tears nations down and brings other nations up and tears other nations down so that He can accomplish His purposes in the world. They show us how God and why God judges the nations. Well, this vision is no different. Nineveh really did exist, and God really did send the Babylonians to really and truly judge Nineveh. Nahum really and truly wrote a book about the destruction of Nineveh. But there's more going on than meets the eye. We see here a picture, a symbolic representation of what God does, not just with Nineveh, but with all cities of man. What God does with all enemies who rise up against Him. What God does with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see that God brings His judgment upon them. Nineveh has plundered Judah. But Judah will be replenished. Judah was emptied, but Judah will then be filled up again. Judah was shamed, but Judah will now be glorified. Judah died in a manner speaking, and now Judah will live again. This is what's happening in the midst of this book. And if we ended the story right here, right now, again, we would say, wow, that's, that's history. There's a lot of trivial things in there. I don't mean trivial. In a, in a, I meant trivia. There's a lot of historical trivia here. Uh, and so far, what we've said, most of what we said, could be received by any devout Jew. But that's not the end of the story for us, is it? We want to ask the question, what this vision, or what does this vision, what does this burden have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with us? So again, on the one hand, the vision of Nahum was fulfilled in space-time history in the real, actual destruction of Nineveh and the deliverance of Judah hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. We're not discrediting that or discounting that. But we're seeing something else in this vision. This vision is fulfilled more fully when God became flesh in Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to you for the next few minutes, what you are going to see and hear are things that Nahum the prophet likely never saw or heard. And here's why. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, Peter tells us that the prophets preached and wrote and saw and said things that they didn't fully understand. 
They knew that they had something to do with the Christ and his sufferings and his glories. And they poured over their own works trying to figure those things out. Then Peter tells us this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So in case you might have checked out for a moment and your mind might have wondered, let me bring you back to reality and tell you something beautiful here. That because of Christ's spirit in you, because of what Christ has done in the world and through the church, because of the scriptures in your hands, you are now able to see and hear things that Nahum the prophet only dreamed of seeing and hearing. We get to see what they only wish to see. We get to hear what they only wish to hear. They were trying, in effect, to put the puzzle together without the box top. And guess what you get to do? You get to put the puzzle together with the box top. Last week we saw, for example, in Nahum 1.15 that the good news and the feasts and the vows mentioned there all foreshadow the gospel of grace, communion at the Lord's table, and tithes and offerings. They all point that way because they point to Christ. But this week, I want to show you how the references to Judah in Nahum 1.15 and to the lion cubs, for example, in 2.11, echo prophecies made about God's people and point to and find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, it matters for you and me tonight. In Nahum 1.15, the prophet mentions Judah. In Nahum 2.11, the prophet mentions lions and lion cubs. I mentioned this to you earlier in passing that when the patriarch Jacob was about to pass from this life, he gathered his sons together and he blessed each one of them. And in a very important passage, he says in Genesis 49.8-10, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." When we read Nahum 2 in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we read it with our Jesus lenses on, then we see clearly that Jesus is the true and better lion of the tribe of Judah. That once he was plundered, but now he is replenished. Once he was emptied, but now he is restored. Once he was humiliated, but now he is exalted. Once he was dead, but now he is alive forever and ever. Once he was a slave and a captive, but now he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the true and better lion of the tribe of Judah who comes with the clouds to judge the living and the dead, who judges and makes war with justice. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
And he will shepherd those nations with a rod of iron. He will tread past the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is important for us to see that the scepter shall not depart from Jesus our Savior, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And this is not about money or tithes and offerings. This is about something much deeper. It is about power and honor and glory and praise. All of these things should go to him for he is worthy to receive them. The scepter shall not depart from his feet until the nations come and obey him. All of this is from Genesis 49, and this is why the deliverance of Judah from Nineveh is so important. Jesus is the true and better lion of the tribe of Judah. He sits at the right hand of God the Father until all enemies are made a footstool for His feet. And if you wonder why we're still in this darkness and this conflict and despair in the midst of this struggle in life, if you wonder why, if Christ is reigning on His throne, why are we still in the midst of these things? Well, because His enemies are still being conquered one by one throughout space-time history. When all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet, then and only then will the end come. And then He will turn and deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. From Nineveh to New York. From Assyria to America. Yes, he must put all enemies under his feet. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it's not merely physical death, which is an enemy that must be destroyed by the life of Christ. But it's the more profound death that has been in the world from the time of our father Adam till now. Through the sin of one man, this kind of death came into the world. Not just physical death, but the kind of death that reaches into the heart and the soul. It's the kind of death that causes separation from God, exile from paradise, banishment, from the face of God. It is that death that Christ will ultimately destroy and put to an end. Jesus Christ is the true and better Judah. The true and better lion of the tribe of Judah. God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of the Savior, Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, what Jacob said about Judah is what God the Father says about Jesus. And it's all true. His brothers shall praise him. His hands shall be on the neck of his enemies. His father's son shall bow down before him just as the father promised. 
Now you know as well as I do, even in this moment, even on this night, we see that things fall apart. Cities are ruined. Nations collapse. The world fades away. But the Word of our God stands forever. And so we are exhorted in the Scriptures. Weep no more. For behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered... And what has he conquered? He has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. And one of those works being not only sin in us, but the fear of death over us. Jesus has come as a scatterer to his enemies. He will disperse and destroy and scatter those who oppose him. But he has come as a gatherer to his friends. His spirit goes throughout the world, gathering his people, bringing them together into one flock under one shepherd, gathering his people, bringing them into one church under the Christ, gathering his people, bringing them into one kingdom under one king. He is a scatterer to his enemies. He is a gatherer to his friends. So what shall we say in response to all of these things? Do not say to yourselves, this has nothing to do with me. I don't live in the time of Nineveh. I don't live among the people of Judah. No, what you should say to yourselves is, what does this have to do with my life? How shall I now live? And the Apostle Peter gives us a set of exhortations to encourage us. Here's how we must live in light of these gospel truths. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all of your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be the people around you. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And after you have suffered a little while, after you've struggled for a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In a nutshell, I want you to know that what God did for Judah in the time of Nineveh, God will do for you and He will do for His church in our time. What God did for Judah in the midst of His struggle and suffering, God will do for you in the midst of your struggle and suffering. And He will do it for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has come to be our Deliverer and in Him we find refuge. We find shelter. We find help in our time of need. Let us pray together. Almighty God, whose compassions fail not, and whose loving kindness reaches unto the world's end, we give you humble thanks for opening 
nations to the light of your truth, for making paths in the deep waters and highways in the desert, and for planting Christ's church in all the earth. Grant, O God, that all people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your Son's church. Grant unto us, your servants, a living and active faith that we may labor diligently to make known to all peoples the blessed gift of eternal life in Christ, who came to preach peace to them that are far off and to them that are near. And, O God, I pray for those who heard your gospel this evening, that the power and the glory of Jesus Christ will descend upon us, descend upon our hearts, and scatter our fears, scatter our sorrows, scatter our brokenness, scatter the enemies that haunt us and plague us. And gather us to himself. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.